Hey, everybody. We have a great interview today with Dr. Dean Foreman, Chief Economist at the American Petroleum Institute. He sits down with Michael Tanner and they cover all things oil and gas around the market. It is a great one and you are going to have fun listening to it. Well, no, I, I'm just excited. Like I said, I'm really excited to to talk to you about this. Most because you know your experience. I think you've done some really cool things in the industry, and I'm, and I'm, I'm excited to to walk through it. But but also somebody who you know, as talk of you know, people are leaving this industry unfortunately and moving in other words. You're somebody who worked was not in the energy business and then got into it. So first off, thanks for joining us. And I wonder if you could just start out by telling us, you know, how, how you got into the energy business specifically and in a big way. You went from working at Verizon to Exxon. I love it. <laughs> Well, I mean, back in the day, right, I, I was an experienced economist, had a lot of econometric uh, statistical uh, kind of underpinnings and love data. And, you know, it's a fit of when you are used to network industries, energy is basically another network industry. Mm-hmm. If you like complex puzzles, what energy offers that's really attractive is lots of puzzles. It's international. It has antitrust and complex regulatory structures. It has international trade. It has nice technology involved all the way through the value chain, lots of transfer pricing and and other concerns, and then market analysis and forecasting at every level. So intellectually of interest, it was a good cultural fit. I started my career in the industry with ExxonMobil, spent a half dozen years as the economist in corporate planning doing that, then really moved into the industry itself. I've been a treasurer in the upstream. I've been on the downstream side as a risk manager, and I've done a lot more corporate planning and strategic planning along the way. So I've been in the chief economist role here at API, which is our main standard setting organization for the industry. It's um, communications and lobbying and a a general trade association that Mm -hmm. represents all swaths of the industry. So with that, and making communications and advocacy relevant in what's happening now is really the crux of the role. I've been doing it for about three years, and I really I love it because it's never a dull moment and it's always changing. Yeah, and, and especially now it's getting you. You know, before you got to the API, and I've got a litany of questions about what's going on uh, in the industry right now that I that, that I really honestly think our listeners are interested, in, and I'm just interested to hear kind of your take on it. But first, you had an opportunity to work for for Saudi Aramco. One, that's got to be cool. You moved from Palm Beach, Florida, to Saudi Arabia. Little, I mean, climate might be the same, just no water. <laughs> it, definitely hot. Um, Despite the fact that you might think it's arid and dry, it's actually quite humid there. From a job perspective, fantastic resources, really interesting, good learning experience. And I I really like the international aspects of our industry. So I've always found that interesting. I was there to lead uh, short-term forecasting on the oil side and also Mm -hmm. the long-term oil demand outlook. So really looking at the energy transition, a lot of the technologies, and all of that has helped build for the things that I've done the last three years. Yeah, it sounds like it's pretty synergistic what you're doing now, and I, I think we might as well just go stop teasing it, dive into it. G- give us, you know, you know, I think the best place to start is just talking about in your eye, what's the current oil supply demand outlook look like? I know we we've been through one phase of lockdowns; people think a second wave are coming. You know, I, I've read some of your reports leading up to this, but really, kind of, if, if you can bring us up to date right now, what are you guys seeing on, on the supply demand side that we should be worried about? 
Well, to keep it pithy, you know, as the economy goes, that's how oil markets go yeah. on a global basis. They're really inextricably tied. And despite some views that maybe there's some breakage in that because certain sectors like air travel, for example, have been really adversely impacted by these shutdowns and maybe for some time. The overall relationship between economic growth and oil demand on a global basis has remained pretty much in lockstep. So, with that, the expectation broadly right now is that, and it's become more bullish if we look at the broad range of forecasters out there, for next year on a global basis, the expectation on a market exchange rate basis is growth of 4.8% compared to the long-term historical average of about three. So this is a bounce off of a low base from 2020 with contraction of about 4% this year to well above average growth next year and the following year expected. And this says that it's not just hanging on the resolution of COVID-19. This says $15 trillion worth of economic stimulus globally is already having a positive impact and is likely to continue to do so. So, oil markets go in tandem with that, right? And EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, you know, people have dialed back their estimates to be a bit conservative before the COVID-19 vaccine news the last couple of weeks, but they're still expecting recovery of 6 million barrels per day increase in demand globally next year. So, if you believe the International Energy Agency, uh, Paris-based International Energy Agency that estimates and observes that global oil decline, just natural decline of wells, is another 4 to 6%. That means in addition to the 6 million barrels per day roughly of demand recovery, you need another 4 to 6 million barrels per day just to, to tread water and replace the natural decline. So that, in plain English, means take every barrel of spare capacity that was taken off the market this year, and you need that and more next year. And the pace of investment now for our industry. Mm -hmm. now, we survey some 200 publicly listed companies across the entire value chain. The industry as a whole in the third quarter invested roughly $38 billion worth of capital expenditures, 38. Through 2019 uh, and going back a year ago, the pace was $65 billion a quarter. So, here we are at $38 billion for the third quarter. That is less than half the worst point, the lowest quarter in the great financial crisis, if we go back to 2008 and 9. Mm -hmm. So you have demand recovery expected, EIA expecting a pretty robust oil demand recovery at the same time as the investment has kind of evaporated, if you will, on the industry side. And that should turn. I mean, that, that environment would suggest that you would have to have a change in the investment environment to keep pace with it. And and that is what it sounds like. Is that going to then solve this litany of oil? You know, the, you know, we've never seen global oil stocks at its highest point. I assume, and 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 correct me if I'm wrong. The answer to your question solves that issue because if we have demand coming back, we're not drilling as much because of the lower capex expenditure. There's that almost. It's not a four to six million barrel flip. It's a twelve million barrel flip on one side, and that's going to maybe recede oil stocks. Am I reading that right? That is correct. That's especially directionally correct. But if we look out the window today, you know, our crude oil stocks in the United States, where we have really good inventory data, have backed off the ledge and are about 10% below where they were you know, at the highest levels over the summer. And directionally, as refiners pick up activity in response to demand, that's come down. Will refiners be able to respond? Well, if we look at the product inventories for refined products, they're basically back to normal. I mean, for, from a you know, if, if we look over the last year or two, they've normalized a lot. So that says that refiners should point forward 
be able to respond to demand. Uh, the utilization rates are not particularly high today, and we've had a few months in the data of hurricane disruptions on top of it. But going forward, if the economy is recovering, you would expect that the refining activity and the products will pick up with it. I think if, if, if COVID wasn't happening, and, and, and you know, I really wish it didn't, but if that wasn't the main headline, the hurricane season and the disruptions that it's had in the Gulf, I think would be a much bigger story. Holy smokes. We cover it on our show every day. It seems like every other, you know, every week there's a new hurricane coming out. They're running out of things to name them. No, no doubt. But it, you know, if you tilt the balance or the scale between mm-hmm. supply and demand, you know, all of these things that, you know, hurricanes that disrupt supply, uh, changes to drilling, what happens with OPEC versus non-OPEC, all of that just gets swamped by the demand side impacts of this 2020 COVID-19 recession. So, this is really a demand side story. And if the economy comes back, as we're seeing, and keep in mind at the end of October, for example, we had U.S. petroleum demand literally only 4%, 4.3% below what it was one year ago. Depending upon the week we look at, we're almost there. I mean, we're getting back to where this this is not a world, even without a vaccine, where everybody is staying home. We can observe, and we do observe that as it's come back, that there is you know, less discretionary travel and driving and more driving out of necessity. You have people driving instead of flying or taking public transit. You see more impact, for example, on gasoline in urban areas than you do in suburban and rural areas. All of those things are true of the patterns in, through COVID-19, and we'd expect some of those to unwind as we go through a recovery. Yeah, I noticed that you you were talking about the the difference in travel in one of your uh, latest pieces from rural to urban. I found that really interesting. But speaking of OPEC Plus, I think it's I wanted to ask you a question about because they're meeting right now and they were obviously yeah, forced to to reschedule because the you know Saudi Arabia, Russia, and UAE can't quite come to agreement here. What what's your take on what's going on here? And, and as somebody who's probably got a, maybe more of an inside scoop on maybe what might be going on the most, but what do you see coming down the pipe on them? Well, let me be clear that API is a trade association for antitrust concerns. Doesn't make or publish price forecasts. You know, we can talk about the fundamentals. Yes. And internationally, with what's happening, you know, OPEC has had difficulty historically maintaining cohesion here and agreeing, and that that was amply clear in a public sense at the very beginning of the COVID-19 crisis where Saudi Arabia and Russia were at odds and actually in a price war that exacerbated the demand shock that we already had. Yeah. And, you know, OPEC came together. They largely took supply off the market that despite the natural decline and shut-ins that occurred in the U.S. and other non-OPEC nations, OPEC took the majority as of the third quarter, almost 5 million barrels per day year on year off the market. And you know, it, you would expect that they're going to want to put some of that back onto the market. EIA's expectation over the next year is that EIA, or excuse me, that OPEC would put about 3.8 million barrels per day. Now, if that's six of growth, you know, 3.8 is, is OPEC coming back. But everybody gets a piece of that pie. As, as the market recovers, EIA is expecting that the US and other non-OPEC countries are also going to expand supply. So, this this should, regardless of how the OPEC meeting plays out and tactically you know, how, the, how this works, the fact is if the economy recovers and demand recovers, there is a piece of the action for everybody there. Yeah, and it, it makes sense because you know what it sounds like is you know there's there's some countries in that really want to turn some production on and 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 all beaten and, and and sticking in the international game real quick. One of the things that we've um, specifically Stu, who's, who's producing this, who's also the co-host of our Energy Newsbeat show via our YouTube channel, shameless plug, uh, subscribe, oil and gas 360, um, is what's going on in the Mediterranean. I know what you know the the the, the 
you know, the talk among the European oil companies is we're, we're, we're going green, much like as we'll cover when we move to the oil section. But if you actually look at the numbers, the, the, the natural gas and pipeline capex that's moving into that Mediterranean, as Stu's been covering very great, is has been astounding. See, what are you seeing on that front in terms of how the European majors are, are kind of shifting themselves as we move into, you know, kind of almost a new decade here? Well, for European companies that are especially sensitive from an investor perspective to to ESG concerns. And natural gas is still a space where they can play in a pretty robust sense. And the Leviathan fine, you know, Eastern Mediterranean gas, pipelines through the Caspian, everything that, that works in that area you know, is still very much a viable investment for them. So you would expect that these are cost competitive plays that Eastern Mediterranean gas is going to compete against Mozambique. It's going to compete against US LNG, Australian LNG. And the thing about LNG markets, we went, this is your biggest source of growth. If we compare the growth, I mentioned energy going along with the economy. For every 1% that the global economy grows, we've basically seen oil demand over the last few years increase at about half that pace. So for every 1%, one half of 1% increase in oil demand. For gas, it's almost one-to-one, and that's continued. So this, yeah, so if you get a 1% increase in global GDP, you can expect a 1% increase in global gas consumption going along with that. And you've seen this through the recovery, even at this point, where despite oversupply that was rampant and demand that was hit this summer, where you literally, from an unprecedented standpoint, had global landed gas prices across the world down close to $2 per million BTU. If we look out the window right now, it's 6 to $7 per million BTU in most of the markets. Yeah, that's not quite back to historically what it would be or what you would base a new LNG train off of, but it's getting there and it's normalized a lot compared to where we were, say, back in April, May, June. What this says also is that as the market's clearing, you know, the demand for the trade, especially as new trains are starting up in the United States, EIA has estimated for November eight and a half billion cubic feet per day, record LNG exports on top of close to record pipeline exports going to Canada and Mexico. And in Mexico, that's continued to be our largest single source of gas exports. And by the way, when we look forward over this next decade, the potential for LNG project you know, capacity and exports could more than double again. And a lot of these are projects that are on the slate that are highly likely to to move forward. So there's tremendous upside potential that competes very well in a global sense with Eastern Mediterranean gas, Asian gas. And as China, emerging Asia as a whole, India continue to need that gas from both an environmental standpoint and just a pure energy standpoint to fuel their economies, that's a growth area. No, it really is. And let's, because I think the same conversation can, can be high, can be, can, can be had, but in, in the U.S. And that's where I want to bring it. You know, I mentioned, you know, that the, the European majors are shifting towards renewables. We're seeing the large super majors, um, both in the U.S. do that as well. Is that, you know, as, you know, as, as a trade association, how do you guys view that in that shift that, that, that and is, is, you know, how do you view that? Well, as a trade association, we have some 600 members across all of our chains, small, small companies in you know, downstream, upstream, midstream, equipment services, engineering, procurement, construction, even petrochemical. It runs the gamut. We have large companies and small. Some of the large companies have elected, especially the European-based ones, to shift strategy toward renewables, toward alternative energy. And 
that's a combination of where they feel their investors and their board are, what strategy they feel that they need uh, in recognizing social imperatives it, that fit with their governments, their host nations, and you know, not to critique any one company's strategy. It is clear that you know, this relationship, as we started talking about, between economic growth and energy demand has remained solid. So, oil and gas, even the companies that have shifted strategy still say oil and gas has a bright future here. It's just a question of where they want to put their bets and their money and their focus. And frankly, we need more energy. It isn't all the above need in terms of having renewables and fossil fuels to supply this. And if you get technology change, several of the majors, including ones that have shifted strategy, highlighted the need for carbon capture use and storage in the, in the long run that extends the life and the usefulness of fossil fuels, you know, oil and natural gas uh, for, for many decades to come. You also, post-2050, if you're going to meet you know, IEA's sustainable development scenario, you start needing technologies that also pull carbon from the atmosphere. So there are a lot of things, and there's a whole research area of, you know, think of graphene and other advanced technologies that for materials that are super lightweight, that couldn't be graphene-based batteries, um, you know, gas and other separation technologies, medical applications. There are a lot of areas where oil and natural gas become the source of carbon molecules for new technologies that are potential growth areas that are not emitting. So, you have in petrochemicals, in materials, in energy technologies, the source for a lot of potential growth that extend the life of fossil fuels. So, when we take a, a broader view that's more than just tailpipe emissions, you know, there's, there's a lot going on that can really be a bright future for oil and gas. And by the way, if you're going to uh, yeah, think about tailpipe emissions as being, yeah, that's just one source of your emissions in the process here. You really need things that are cost effective as solutions here. And unless you've got 100% renewables, which goes up exponentially in cost to manage an electricity grid that's interconnected, that has battery storage, that can deal with the intermittency that comes with 100% renewables, um, you still need natural gas as a viable role to flex up and down in supplying that. And you need to think cost effectively of how you get there. Because if you just move the emissions from the tailpipe to the smokestack, keeping you know, a lot of coal in the mix, that doesn't really achieve the ESG goal that you started with. So, you've spent a lot of money and you didn't solve your problem. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, we've been seeing a lot of oil field service companies, Baker Hughes has snatched up a carbon capture technology. We've seen some upstream do that. And, you know, I, this is a this is a take that I've actually heard from a good friend of mine, Tisha Schuler. Uh, she talks about how oil and gas is in the perfect position to solve its own issues. We don't need people to come outside. So I do agree with your take there that there are some things the industry is doing technology-wise to already go ahead and solve some of these quote-unquote issues that people see. So uh, I think it's pretty awesome. Um in terms of, you know, I think the biggest thing when we talk about COVID that moving out of just the supply and demand is is how it's impacted the M&A activity and, and, and from, a, from an upstream perspective. And I think a lot of people thought there were going to be a lot more deals than there were. There were some pretty big deals, but then the, there was also the tentative. So where do you guys see the M&A activity industry right now and, and maybe how you see it going forward? Well, we can't predict it, but just to give a perspective on what's actually happened. You know, if we go back and rewind to you know, the April, May, June timeframe, credit risk, financial stress across the entire sector, all segments of it was extremely elevated to historic levels. With oil prices having stabilized over the summer, you know, after two to three months of that, 
the credit risk was really subsiding. And when we look out the window today, the industry as a whole, if we look, for example, at a credit default swap spread, the cost to insure a corporate bond against default uh, you know, on a five-year bond, for example, it's back below pre-COVID levels you know, on an industry-wide basis. And today, point forward, if you're looking out, you would only see a handful of companies that have relatively extreme financial distress that would be bankruptcy risk in the tw- next 12 months. And the, by and large, the companies that have gone through bankruptcies up to this point are not the household names in the industry. Now, for M&A activity, we've seen a pickup in, in deals Maybe not as much as some might expect, but that's a question of, are you on your front foot planning forward or are you defending your balance sheet? And if you're in a defensive posture, you know, really trying to make sure you can live within your means, you know, taking over or acquiring something that might be negative in terms of its cash flows, it doesn't help you weather the storm, if you will. So I think people are still waiting to make sure that they make it through. If this economic turning point comes and it becomes an opportune time for the industry to start to get back onto the front foot from that standpoint. And the industry is doing a lot. I mean, I think it really is planning forward. You're seeing assets change hands, not just corporately. It doesn't always have to be a corporate acquisition. And this is just an evolution, the next step in a natural process where over the last decade with the shale revolution in the U.S., we've seen a tremendous expansion in the number of exploration and production companies, service companies that have played in the space. There, You would expect in any industry, as you go through a maturation of such a disruptive change, to have some fallout from that. And this crisis period, coupled on top of the one that we went through in 2015 to 16 with a price downturn, really is just accelerating a process that should have occurred naturally. Yeah, and um, no, I, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think when you talk about you know, some of the companies that declare bankruptcy, we're probably going to have to do it even without COVID. I mean, because as you talked about, there was some stuff going on even before this this complete shutdown that was happening. Um, I want to just quickly tell our listeners this. If you want to not hear politics, just drop off now. But I, I, I have to ask, as, as Dean, as, we, as, as we're probably changing administrations here, how are you guys viewing, you know, that shift? And, and what are you guys doing to prepare? Because I know if, you know, you know in, in a Biden administration, you know, federal frat, you know, we could see some stuff going on with federal leases. We may have seen the last offshore um uh, sale um, in terms of drilling, and how are you guys kind of viewing that, and, and whether preparing, talking to your guys' stakeholders in that regard? Sure. Well, this is something that we've monitored carefully, and you know, with a Biden administration and a split Congress, which is what it looks like we have, you would expect fewer things like new taxes and going through legislative channels, but a lot more activity going through regulatory channels. The prime thing that's on our radar is some in the that were going to be part of the Biden administration has signaled the potential for a ban of fracking on federal lands specifically limited to that. API on its website has a study that shows that this is still a a massive economic impact and a really catastrophic one for states like Wyoming and New Mexico that have substantial amounts of federal federal lands, substantial impact for Texas as well. Uh, You're talking, you know, shifting from being uh, you know, a petroleum net exporter to losing a couple million barrels per day of production over the next decade, you'd lose uh, you know millions of jobs over, between now and 2022. It's like a million jobs. You're talking between now and 2023. I believe it's like 700 billion dollars worth of 
it's it's big GDP impacts through the entire value chain. It affects jobs. It affects the viability of our industry, and it reverses our energy security and a lot of the progress that we've made on that front just by changing the fracking on federal lands. Keeping in mind that ninety five percent of our production in this country is now reliant on hydraulic fracturing, which is not just fracking, right? It's it's imaging technologies, it's horizontal drilling, and it's hydraulic fracturing as a disruptive combination of technology and process innovation. So I think cooler heads will prevail. People will realize that the impacts on certain specific states could be extreme. And hopefully cooler heads prevail where you have the industry being able to work to set high standards and make sure that some of the ESG concerns that are underlying this are addressed. API, for example, has an environmental partnership that involves more than 80 companies today, where over the last two years has made substantial progress in reducing emissions in operations in the upstream. It's spreading into the downstream. There's some, uh, you know, consistency and reporting that didn't previously exist that's documenting the reductions in emissions. So the industry is pulling itself up by its bootstraps and trying to respond to many of the issues that that underlie the you know these political imperatives. Now beyond that, you know, offshore leasing, you know, we, we would remain concerned about what may happen with the future of that. Um, you know, want to make sure because that's an important source of access to resources and prospective growth. And we have a lot of industries, especially across the Gulf Coast, that rely critically on having a viable offshore industry. And you need both onshore and on and onshore operations to complement to continue to go through the cycles that we have in this industry. Yeah. And why I like the API and specifically your work is you talk about the whole value chain. I think people just think, oh, we're going to stop fracking on these lands. Cool. We're just going to move the resources. Well, no, there's a whole value chain of resources that go away. And and I do think, as you mentioned, there's an education piece to hydraulic fracturing that we can have a whole other conversation on what it actually is. What are the actual um, causes behind it? But no, um, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I just want to first thank you for, for coming on again. Um, I've really enjoyed talking with you. You've, you've, you've hit a, the litany of questions that I've thrown at you. Um, I, I kind of want to just turn it over to you. Is there anything that, you know, you, know, you want to cover that you think people should be either concerned about, worried about, keep on their mind and maybe not to scare everybody, but there's something that you feel coming down that, that, that maybe it's not getting as much coverage as you would like. Well, I think the thing to think about as API, you know, we're not just a trade association. We are a source of primary survey data for the industry. We survey up to 90% of the industry every single week. And when we put out you know, a weekly fundamentals brief, a monthly statistical report, and this quarterly presentation that you see that you've asked some questions based on, you know, this is based on real primary insight in terms of what's happening in U.S. petroleum markets across the entire value chain, as, as we've talked about. This is the supply, the demand, the trade, the inventories of crude oil, of natural gas liquids, and of every single major refined product. It's a lot to, you know, to get your head around, but at the same time, it gives us credibility and confidence in looking at the data and seeing the extent of the actual recovery. So it's not just pie in the sky or an article of faith that, that there has been a recovery here. It's in the actual data. And as the economy continues to recover, if we believe, believe it will, and that you know, vaccines come and things normalize over the next year, there is reasons, strong reasons for cautious optimism here. And when we build up the economy by you know, what it's based on, where you know, in the U.S., roughly two-thirds of GDP is expenditures, right? Personal, think of it as consumer spending by households and businesses. Um, and another almost 30% of the global economy is based on investment. So when we look at 
consumption and investment, the IMF and United Nations expectations for that, even without a vaccine over the next five years, it's pretty robust in terms of the amount of growth. So there are really... There's been a passing of the torch over the last decade where emerging economies have been the engine of economic growth globally, the improvement of human and economic prosperity and growth. That's continuing. And it's easy from a U.S. perspective, especially when you go through a really tough time to lose sight of that. But this engine continues. And when you start thinking outside of the bounds of sitting in the U.S. and thinking about what it's like if you are in Asia or if you are in the Middle East, and having been there, I can tell you, the upside is tremendous in terms of the potential for these economies to continue to grow. And the energy that goes with it is indelible. So, that's that's where I would end is that I've got a lot of confidence that there are reasons for cautious optimism here. Well, that's awesome. And and we love to be optimistic. And no, you guys do great work. I In a previous life, I was a, I worked on a prop desk, a prop oil desk, and I was 2.30 Mountain Standard Time every Tuesday. <laughs> I was ready for those numbers. So uh, I love what you guys do over there. Again, thank you for joining us. And if you guys want to check...